Welcome to PS Editor's Podcast, where we engage PS contributors and other experts on some of the day's most pressing issues. I'm Greg Bruno, an associate editor at Project Syndicate in Prague. Today, we're talking about Russia. In less than two months, Russia will hold a presidential election. But the outcome is already known, and no matter how the ballots are counted, Vladimir Putin will almost certainly win a fourth term. If he completes it, he will become the longest-serving Russian leader since Stalin. What can't be predicted is what another six years of Putin's rule will mean for Russia, Europe, and the world. Putin's Russia clearly aspires to regional and global greatness. In Syria, Putin can claim credit for the survival of Bashar al-Assad's regime. In the U.S., Putin has a powerful admirer in Donald Trump. And in Europe and elsewhere, surreptitious intervention and manipulation of the democratic process has become a Kremlin hallmark. My guest today has spent years examining the evolution of Russian power, politics, and identity. Nina Khrushcheva is a professor of international affairs at the New School. She is also a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and a longtime Project Syndicate contributor. Hello. Hi, Nina. Thanks for joining us today on PS Editor's podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So uh, I want to talk about Russia. Uh, Russians go to the polls on March 18th, but as the BBC notes, President Putin is so popular that victory may be handed to him like, and I quote, a cute puppy. Um, His main challenger, Alexei Navalny, has been barred from running because of concocted allegations of fraud. You were just in Russia. Um, With Putin's victory all but assured, can we even call this an election? Uh, Not really. I mean, it's not really an election. It's just the support of the president. And um, uh, when I was there um, just last week, I was absolutely struck by how not only similar, but even more sinister uh, the current so-called elections are. Um, I was traveling, it was not just in Moscow, and in almost every shopping mall or in, at the airport, there is a stand with volunteers, which I love that word, with volunteers collecting signatures for Putin to uh, run for president, as if there is an issue that he wouldn't, God forbid, he's not going to take uh, 7,500 signatures. And uh, so I asked them why it is just Putin could be other other people as well. And he very cleverly um, nominated himself as a not as part of the party, the United Russia Party he is part of, but as just sort of general Russia candidate. So to pretend that there is more support from, from the nation. And uh, they say, no, it's just Putin and we love him and he's just so wonderful. And it's so wonderful because it's a year of volunteer and how appropriate it is. And my question to them would be, uh, isn't it a little bit insidious for you to be a volunteer for the state? Shouldn't it be actually something volunteering for the, for for something that the state can do? And they can't even understand my question. Um, so uh, the reason I am very incensed by what's going on is that the Soviet Union was more honest about this. We all knew it was a lie. And um, I think the the tragedy of Putinism is that We know it is a lie, but we pretend that it's not. And then we convince ourselves that it's not a lie. Mm. Well, it's interesting. You you use the word Putinism. So if if Russians aren't actually voting for uh, in in an election, what are they voting for? Is it is it for a man, a president or is it for an idea? Well, I think it's all of the above. I mean, Russia is an idea. I mean, you know, it's a it's a very large country. It's 
you know, country that uh, one part of it is deeply in Europe and another part of it is on the border of North Korea, South Korea, Japan, China. Um, and uh, so the world, the world apart. So you kind of have to imagine what Russia is. And Russia is an idea of strong power. Uh, that is always surrounded by enemies, because otherwise how you can justify uh, the strengths of that power. So it is an idea. It is a man, because he does um, give this really incredible impression of himself as a man of all people, and he's protecting uh, the Russians and the Russian state from all this evil enemies or Westerners that are out to get and take Russia down. And that's where Alexei Navalny comes in, because uh, the story today is one of the reasons, of course, he's not running is also because he's a Western puppet and Putin, um, you know, he likes speaking to his people just to convince them or uh, kind of remind them that he's there watching out for them. So uh, he was speaking to journalists just last week and he was saying, well, and why is the West only mentioning Navalny? So obviously he's a puppet, which I do love. It's such a great kind of glittering general generalization propaganda logic. I mean, we're talking about Navalny because he is possibly, if you didn't bar him from elections, would be the only viable candidate. But so I actually kind of interviewed people as, as well who were supposedly signing up. I mean, not that there was a rush to sign up, but there were some people kind of hanging around those stands. And and I said, so what's the, uh, what's the story for you about Putin? And three people uh, told me that what they're voting for is for Putin because there's nobody else. Mm. And then when I started asking about Navalny is that, well, there are other opportunities and possibilities, then I was just shooed away by volunteers because I was interfering with their Putinistic volunteering at the mm, time. Right. Right. The idea of uh, you know voting for somebody who represents power, I assume that's one of the reasons why Putin and his acolytes are saluting you know, Ivan the Terrible and Stalin, figures who embody authoritarianism and isolationism and impunity. Is this one of the, the appeals of these vestiges of the past, do you think? Well, I mean, he is... I mean, it is a presidency is a construction. I mean, we see it every day with Donald Trump. You kind of decide what kind of a leader you're going to be, and then you construct that image. And for Putin, uh, is it is an interesting one because, uh, you know, only the Tsars before, and even those dynasties. I mean, Russia's had two dynasties before 1917, before the Bolshevik Revolution. Even they. Um, kind of very carefully were going into the past and picking out what kind of uh, tsardom that would want to represent their own, their contemporary, uh, contemporary empire. And so Putin is very clever because he has the whole thousand years of Russian history under his belt, so to speak. He picks and chooses the tsars that he wants. It would be the original Christian idea. That would be the the first dynasty, the Rurik dynasty, he would pick out certain strong hand rulers. And then the Romanovs, I mean, he would be Catherine the Great. Actually, it's not even that Peter the Great is his favorite. It's Catherine the Great, interestingly enough, because she was the first in Syria. She was the first in Crimea. She was the one who put together many more lands uh, than even Peter the Great. And Putin actually said that it, she is his favorite leader. So I think that is a very clever way of, of dealing with history. You pick and choose and you kind of use those previous tsars and emperors as the pegs of your own power. 
And uh, using Vladimir, and especially because he's very big into the symbolism, there's a lot of Vladimirism there, and some of them are great. And so Putin really makes himself a descendant of all those either Vladimirs or those greats. Hmm. So there's there's a question, I suppose, of perception of power and actual you know, reality as, as comes to his effectiveness and the ability to uh, enforce a writ. Uh, you know, outside looking in, it looks as if with one candidate, a monolithic power in the Kremlin. But there are some who question, I suppose, uh, just how strong and powerful he may be in a fourth term. Um, in one of your recent pieces for, for Project Syndicate, you outlined the legal battle that has embroiled Igor Sechin, the CEO of the state-owned oil giant Rosneft, uh, and some of the legal challenges that, that, that he's in, been involved in. Uh, and it's been interpreted by some as a sign of weakness. I think you interpret it slightly differently. Um, just where where does the reality of Putin power lie? Well, I think in many ways it is a very weak power. I mean, it has been known, um, you know, in philosophical terms and political science science terms that weak states have weak liberties. So that's where we are. Uh, in effect, the um, uh, appeal of Alexei Navalny is exactly that, is that he says we don't have to be corrupt and uh, and paranoid in order to be a strong power. In fact, uh, the transparency, the um, anti-corruption measures, the freedom of uh, entrepreneurship is something that strong Russia should have, not the Russia that pretends to be strong because it, in fact, it limits every single um, every single opportunity for people to uh, to express their opinion, to express their worldview, to uh, to create their own businesses, small businesses and, and whatnot. So, yes, he does. And I actually think that in some ways, I mean, there is a um, very persistent rumor for many years, for some years at least, that uh, Putin is very tired of his busy presidential life or stressful, not busy, but stressful presidential life. And he wants to get out, but he can't get out. And I totally believe that he I mean, I don't know if he wants to get out per se, because uh, I don't really know any leader in Russia that has ever gotten out uh, by volition, except for uh, Boris Yeltsin, which is, you know, a questionable reason as to why he did. Uh, but other than that, they stay there for as long as they can. But if he does, if he does want some sort of other kind of life, he can't because uh, it's all tied together. I mean, the corruption, the uh, um, uh, the sort of the connections, the fear of clans, uh, of one clan and against another. And we also, of course, we don't have to remind ourselves, but it always has to be at the back of our mind about everything we talk about Russia or Putin is that he's a KGB man. So he, round, he surrounded himself with KGB men and, you know, KGB men uh, do not have, they have some loyalty, but it's not a guarantee that the loyalty would last forever. So in some ways he's, I'm sure, very scared because he knows if the enemies come up and if the enemies get stronger, those uh, uh, clans get stronger, he knows what the outcome of his life is going to be and it's not going to be pretty. So in this sense, uh, he almost has to stay in power, not out of strength, hmm. but in fact out of weakness. Hmm. Interesting. So might we see in a fourth term uh, the equivalent of a lame duck presidency? Well, he, I don't know. I mean, I've been so wrong and I've been actually predicted in Project Syndicate some years ago that it been, it's two years and Putin is gone uh, because that's how kind of historically the story, the story goes or should have gone. But so far he hasn't because he's good. He's manipulative. He knows... 
um, uh, he knows who to kind of how to pull the strings. So it could be. I mean, I've been waiting for a palace coup for such a long time now, and they've been some. I mean, I'm I'm not going to talk about details of that because these details we don't know. But there are certain people who um, are no breathing in his neck and kind of really tired of the stories around them. Uh, and you know, the people he put up and brought up and kind of, you know, the, um, Shaigu, the defense minister, there's, uh, the same Sechin, although I don't know how strong he remains, but there are other people around Putin and some, the, the mayor of Moscow, Sabanian, there are possibilities that they are creating their own clans, but Russia is, you know, it's like reading tea leaves. It's like Byzantine empire power. You really don't know. It's not, it's not Germany where on page 200 it's written X, Y, Z. They don't write anything. That's why it's actually very difficult to pinpoint anything that Putin has done because there's really not that many documents that you can, you can go to. Uh, so it could be, there could be a palace coup. Uh, Alexei Navalny's troops are very, very powerful. And the question is how much the Russian state would want to push the uh, the power of the people down. I mean, so far they've done, but they've done it carefully as well. So how bloody uh, those protests can get, that's another question. Uh, and of course, the third one uh, is, um, you know, Putin is not an old man. He's in his mid-60s. But who knows? I mean, there are certain things that happens in the Kremlin and you don't know what they are. Hmm. Interesting. Let's pivot for a moment, if we could, from the perception of potential weakness to the perception of strength. The revival of Russia under Putin, both economically, militarily, and I suppose ge geopolitically, uh, has been much discussed in the West. Um, you've written quite a bit about uh, the hydrocarbon reserves, which give the Kremlin a, quote, geopolitical cudgel. But I wonder if Russia's economy, uh, as it's currently formulated, can sustain the president's ambitions, assuming that he is able to execute them, or if there are other factors that will constrain him on the world stage as he enters a fourth term. Well, I mean, the Russian economy certainly constrains that president, but that's the whole message about the world is out to get us and we have to, you know, really increase our military footing. And that's why he runs around the world or people come to him to sell all his military equipment. He's very proud of, of this kind of achievements uh, and has been lately for some years now. So it depends on what kind of economy you're building. I mean, and, and as, I, as I was saying, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with those protest movements and the stronger they become, if they do become stronger, uh, the more oppressive the Kremlin would get, might get. Uh, and also, of course, the message of, uh, of uh, Russian power being undermined by all these other powers uh, also would help, would help to put economy on that military footing. And we are going to be talking about an entirely different economy, because when we talk about it now, we still uh, think it's sort of the soft power, the market one. But, you know, what would, in fact, Putin probably would feel much better if it's uh, um, kind of a straightforward military state. In fact, in my travels, I was always sort of stunned by uh, seeing, you know, say, restaurant um, restaurant hours put out as the um, regiment of operation. It's like, well, I'm sorry, it's a restaurant. What what kind of regiment of operation? Are we, are we military? Are we military uh, plant? But that's the thing. I mean, I was, you know, in a in a cathedral the other day, 
right before I left, and it's a regiment of operations. Like, oh, wow, what kind of regiment of operation you can have in a cathedral serving God? So I think in, in some ways, in, in mentally, it wouldn't be that difficult to turn into a military economy. And then we're going to have an entirely different conversation because a military-industrial complex is a very different uh, economy uh, than... Um, the economy of goods and services, and Russia has always been on the side of a military-industrial complex, but there were certain let-outs in the last 25 years. And, you know, if Putin decides that he's moving back towards that direction, uh, you know, people would be asked to kind of give up their cappuccinos, and they might, because, mm -hmm. you know, once again, the world is out to get us, and who's going to defend us but the great Vladimir Putin. Right. Well, that narrative, the world is out to get us, had a, um, I suppose, a bit of a jolt with the winner of the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., you know, a year ago, uh, the Kremlin was probably popping champagne uh, at the election uh, and victory of Trump. But a year into uh, Donald Trump's presidency, U.S. sanctions on Russia remain in place. How, and I'm just wondering, from, from your perspective, if Trump's ties and, and potential Ill illegitimacy, his diminishing clout internationally, has impacted Putin at all, or if the two men uh, have uh, somehow profited from uh, their mutual affinity. Well, I don't know if Trump profited from his affinity with Putin. I think he, Trump does. Trump does like. Uh, he looks at those strong leaders like, well, I am just like them. I mean, of course, I am a meta strong leader. That is, I'm a reality TV candidate, but I am performing to be just like them, uh, which is, by the way, also very scary. But um, uh, I don't know about when. I, my, actually, I'm not of the view. I've never been on the view that Putin is a um, was a great supporter of that kind of presidency. I mean, I'm sure they tried and I'm sure they thought, well, you know, if this man is saying how great Russia is, you know, what could be so bad? But also, isn't it a dream of every KGB officer to uh, embarrass the United States and to pretend or actually really influence some uh, domestic politics or policies? But I'm, I'm, I think Putin is too smart to really think that Trump is just going to, with this magic finger, turn it around. He, he hoped for it, but it was more people around him, like, you know, or people uh, in politics in general, more of those sort of our own clowns. We have a man from the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, which is kind of insults the Liberal and Democratic, uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who was popping champagne. And that was the story. It wasn't necessarily the Kremlin. Um, I think, once again, the, the clever KGB cleverness of Putin is that uh, he was sort of sitting kind of in the middle of the story all the time and saying, well, I'm not for it. I'm not against it. I'm going to work with any American president. And I think his way out and has already been his way out to some degree is that, well, you know, we hoped for a better relationship with him. But Americans just like that, you know, they promise things, they say things, but then it turned out to be crap anyway. And, you know, we cannot trust the United States with Trump and with no Trump and sort of with an added bonus to say, well, and Trump may be a fine guy, but of course, those Democrats, those pesky Democrats, uh, including Hillary Clinton, who once called Putin Hitler, which, by the way, would never be forgotten uh, to the, to any Democrat that would come, uh, in the future. Uh, so all this, they're not letting him in. So I guess Russia should build its own, uh, its own empire or sort of its own new Warsaw Pact, those 
Soviet combination of, of states that are on the military footing together with Russia. So I think in some very bizarre, but also kind of very lucky way for Putin, he always has exits in both sides. And, and that really, I think, kind of damaged the world in, in many ways um, more than Trump ever would, is that uh, in some strange way, on strange way, uh, Putin really knows the KGB policies is that you always have an exit strategy, and he really does. And that's kind of a problem because the United States under Barack Obama never thought that he would. He'd, like he was always dismissed as a Barack Obama once again said the slouchy kid at the back of the classroom, which is really a very big mistake to underestimate the man with uh, uh, with an experience of being a nobody and then springing right into the open. So I want to come to a, a piece that you wrote for Project Syndicate as a way to kind of wrap up and, and perhaps go back to where we started. You've written that what the U.S. needs is a political leader akin to Robert Taft or Daniel Webster, someone who, in, in your view, is willing to risk political ruin to save their country. Um, is there a plausible scenario in which Putin's government or parts of it begin to turn on him? I mean, you touched on this a, a, a bit, but diving back into internal Kremlin uh, political tea leaf reading. Is this a scenario that um, uh, has any comparative? Well, it could have been. I mean, Navalny could have been that leader, but he's not really strong, uh, strong uh, force politically. I mean, certainly not an establishment establishment force. Um, I don't. I mean, I I see the names that I mentioned: the the, the mayor of Moscow, the defense, uh, the defense minister. There are possibilities to turn on Putin, but I, I'm not sure that these are these are the leaders that, in fact, are going to bring some uh, different change. I mean, there were other uh, Putin flunkies at the time where, you know, they could have been because I do know that um, some of Putin, uh, some of Putin uh, entourage, I mean, Sergei Ivanov was. Uh, his deputy uh, prime minister, and he was his chief of staff. And in fact, he was um, kind of, I'm sure, was hoping to become prime minister himself. His his two problems: uh, he was tall, uh, and that's kind of no no. I think for Putin for, to see somebody in power who is taller than he he is, which is by the way not hard. And uh, uh, he's also KGB general, and Putin was just a colonel. Uh, and so there were some ideas that Ivanov would somewhat try to take over because Ivanov was uh, incensed when the sanctions happened. I mean, he had a good relationship with the United States, with Donald Rumsfeld, for example, with the former Secretary of State under George Bush. So, um, so there was an opportunity for them to turn around, but they didn't. And I think now it, it got a little more stagnant. And so if there is a palace coup, I don't know if the outcome of a palace coup would be the same as it was with Taft or Charles de Gaulle, who um, kind of refused to uh, leave France, or other people who um, damaged their or uh, kind of put in danger their political career in order to save their country. I don't see that uh, in... I don't see it in the Kremlin. On the other hand, I mean, I always have an example of my grandfather, Nikita Khrushchev, who took after Stalin and probably was the last person 
uh, Stalin thought would uh, uh, would denounce Stalin's cult of personality, and yet he did. And I'm sure there was—I mean, I know there was a lot of risk for him to take the anti-Stalinist road, and yet he did. So maybe, and I don't think anybody expected that from Khrushchev anyway. So it is a possibility that if Putin is taken down, the person who would take him down or come to replace him would be that kind of leader. I don't see it, but I would be happy to be absolutely wrong on that. Well, certainly lots of things to be paying very close attention to, if not the uh, election results on March 18th, because um, we can, I suppose, assume what they will say. We, we can, or they would be at Patlas School right around that day. <laughs> well, if that happens, we'll call you back, most, most certainly. Okay. Um, okay. Well, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today, Nina. Thank you very much. That was Nina Khrushcheva, a professor of international affairs at the New School. You can read all of her PS columns at www.project-syndicate.org. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.